Hello and welcome to Think Like an Owner. This episode is the first in a new six-episode series of the Trilogy Search Partners, where we share stories and insights from talented entrepreneurs and investors from around the traditional search fund community. I'm very excited for this series and believe it will be a fantastic way to share more about the traditional search world, especially from some of its best stories that often go undercover by media today. To kick off the first episode in our Trilogy Search series, we have Aaron Perrine and Scott Alderman, both of whom are partners at Trilogy, to help introduce our guests today, Nikita Sunilkumar and Kush Das. I'm very excited to start this series with both of you and talk more about traditional search on the podcast through this series that I think will be an exciting new format for the podcast. To kick things off, can you tell us a little bit about the impetus for the series and then a little bit about Trilogy? Great. Well, you know, uh, Alex, we've been looking for a way to collaborate for a while now, and we're thrilled to be here to be a sponsor of the series and to play a role in providing your audience with more exposure to the search fund model. To your credit, it's been apparent to us that the podcast has become a go-to resource for aspiring entrepreneurs who are considering raising a search fund. And we're hopeful that these episodes will provide interesting case studies of entrepreneurs who have successfully leveraged the model to source, acquire, and and operate a great small business. We also want to devote a couple of episodes to consider how certain features of the model, such as governance led by search fund investors and other industry experts, can stack the odds of success in favor of, of the entrepreneur. Before diving into the series a little bit more, can you share more about Trilogy? Yeah, great. Certainly echo um, Scott's comments, Alex, about what you have been able to build. Trilogy is a team of uh, seven individuals who are dedicated to partnering with search fund entrepreneurs and to providing the capital along with uh, other investors in our community to finance the search process and the acquisition of a great business. Uh, Along with our capital, we support searchers with our expertise, the expertise of our operating executives, and other resources we've developed to help the searcher optimize his or her time and avoid some of the common pitfalls that we think challenge many first-time CEOs. We've been dedicated to search for about eight years now and have offices in Seattle and in the Bay Area. So where does Trilogy fit in the search ecosystem? As you know, there's a lot of great firms and individuals who are active search fund investors. Different investors bring different scale, strategy, value to the table. And it's hard to fit everyone in a category, but I can I can tell you a little bit about our model. We're structured as a fund with committed capital dedicated to investing in search funds and, and searcher-led acquisitions. There's a handful of funds like us who typically are among the larger backers of a searcher, both when he or she is 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 raising uh, the capital to finance the search, and then again at the acquisition stage. And generally, we tend to be the lead investor or a co-lead investor, which uh, we think is a good fit with how we've built our investing and, and operating teams. And, and you know, just to build on that, our goal is to be a super accessible, supportive partner to searchers through all phases of the search fund cycle. To start, we do that by having a team that's totally dedicated to searchers and operators. And as people often observe on the podcast, um, searching is hard and operating is hard. And the entrepreneurs we partner with are enormously talented, but hopefully our experience and our willingness to work shoulder to shoulder on diligence and on operating issues uh, is helpful. One aspect of our model that is unique to Trilogy is the operating executive group that we work with. And these are C-level experts across some of the key functional areas for small businesses like finance, accounting, technology, marketing, PR, recruiting, and talent management. And we calculated that in 2021, that group of Trilogy operating executives collectively um, did over 6,000 hours of work in the Trilogy portfolio. And we think that's one example, uh, hopefully, of, of um, what we and other investors like us um, do to help entrepreneurs be successful. Well, let's dive into the episode series and the the reason for being and a lot of the goals that you have with this series. I'm excited to put together with you. And then let's also introduce our two guests today, Nikita and Kush. Sure. So our, our goal is in sponsoring the series is to provide a, a, you know, a cohesive set of episodes to the search fund community focused on first a few key industry verticals where we see a lot of activity, you know, starting today with, with healthcare. And as I mentioned before, we're also planning uh, episodes that address 
particular aspects of a search searcher's journey, irrespective of industry. And we hope these will be useful episodes for the community, and we're certainly enjoying the the, the process of helping put them together. So today we're for, we're fortunate to have partnered with both Nikita and Kush, and hopefully one thing you'll hear is a bit about their connection as well. And that's a great aspect of the search fund community that the support entrepreneurs get is not just from investors, but from each other. Yeah, it's very clear the two of them are friends and, and peers and have, have chatted quite a bit. Um, it sounds like you've seen a lot of healthcare and search. What's been notable to you within search's interest in healthcare and some of these investments and just what stands out to you? Yeah. I think it's right, especially in the first, you know, last 36 months, healthcare has been a, a significant area of activity um, uh, for us at Trilogy, and I think for search funds more broadly. And I think there's probably a few reasons for that. Uh, you know, first, it's just an enormous sector of the economy uh, with a number of different business models, including um, as as Kush and Nikita talk about, you know, provider or clinical businesses, SaaS companies um, in the healthcare space, um, and other business to business services. It, you know, there's also just the, the the clear demographic trends behind many of the companies that searchers have acquired. And then there's some really exciting industry trends, um, just general consolidation, uh, but also the trend towards value-based care that you'll hear more about today and the trend towards non-hospital care. That said, um, these businesses are complex. And you know one thing Kush and Nikita um, uh, talk about is some of that uh, complexity and you know how to find good support, um, hopefully from folks like us and others um, as they get into operating um, some of these more complex healthcare businesses. We, you know, when we looked back and, and listened to the episode, a couple points, um, you know, we think are worth taking away is this idea of kind of a continuum of uh, being closer to or further from the patient in healthcare deals, um, the importance of good and early execution and revenue cycle management. And, you know, just the importance of being a lifelong learner. Searchers come into these deals with typically still a, a lot more to learn. And we all, you know, we all have to be willing to jump in and continue to expand our knowledge and expertise uh, in, in operating these businesses. Well, I'm very excited to get started with this series and I'm looking forward to kicking things off today with you both. Thanks, Alex. We we appreciate it, and we're we're delighted to sponsor the series, and th- we hope that uh, everyone in the community will find them to be helpful. To learn more about Trilogy Search Partners, please reach out via their website at trilogy-search.com. I also want to thank our other three sponsors: Live Oak Bank, Hood and Strong, and Oberly Risk Strategies. And now to the episode. Hello, and welcome, everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman, and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies, with a special focus on search funds, micro-private equity, and small company operations. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com podcast, and follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I'm also the founder of The Operator's Handbook, a print publication where small company operators share their insights and ideas for building more effective and profitable companies. Articles focus on process improvement, sales, hiring and training, managing culture, and all responsibilities within operating a small company. If you run a small company today and are looking for new ways to grow and improve, subscribe today and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better at thearbitershandbook.com. Welcome to the first episode in our Trilogy Search Partners series with great entrepreneurs and investors from the traditional search world. Today, I'm joined by Nikita Sunokamar and Kush Das, who both searched and acquired home healthcare businesses through a traditional search process. Kush acquired a noble care and works as a CEO today, and Nikita acquired Crown Health in June 2020, and in fact, just recently sold in early 2022. Both Nikita and Kush are fantastically talented entrepreneurs, as well as being friends, which will be apparent as you listen to the episode. Their combined experience offers a great lens into what acquiring and operating a healthcare business looks like today and how to succeed. During our conversation, we talk about search interest in healthcare, different subcategories of healthcare, value-based trends, challenges and diligence, talent management, changes from COVID, and so much more. Please enjoy this first Trilogy Search episode. 
Well, thank you both for joining us. This will be a fun way to kick off the the trilogy episode series. You guys are both in healthcare and both acquired companies recently, and one of the view of you has even sold so far. So that's very exciting. Would love to just kick off with your backgrounds and how you got to decide on launching a search and the companies you've acquired. Nikita, do you want to start off? Sure. Yeah. So the very brief story is that I'm an engineer by training, spent the first five years of my career at Boeing, working on manufacturing and process engineering, went to business school thinking I was going to come back to Boeing. Within like six weeks, I was like, well, never mind. that plan is shot because <laughs> there's a whole world out there that I had absolutely no idea about and kind of accidentally went to the ETA conference at Kellogg my first year thinking it was something else entirely and was very inspired, but definitely decided to kind of take a longer view of it and you know, applying to consulting firms and doing the, the traditional MBA kind of path. But I took the class, an ETA class before I left and then kind of, you know, met some people, started, you know, thinking about it over the course of the first year that I was at, at the consulting firm post-graduation and then was spending enough time on it, you know, outside of my already busy consulting life that it was like, okay, if I'm doing this in my spare time for free, I should probably go figure out a way to make it, you know, financially viable. So raised my fund and then got into into search. That's kind of my my story. My my path to crown is is different. I guess it's intentional in the sense that I had sort of geriatric care in my my thesis, but certainly had no idea I was going to end up in healthcare and had no no background in healthcare. You could say had no business being in healthcare too, but found my way there and just the thesis made so much sense that I was like I this is the deal. So went went down the the rabbit hole. So my background is actually not from the business school route. I was in healthcare before for a while. I actually worked in college and law school as an EMS provider full-time in college and then uh, more part-time in law school, so I didn't flunk out. And then after law school, I actually became a healthcare lawyer. I did a lot of stuff with providers, so I kind of fell into back then what was the early stages of value-based care and you know, ACOs here and there, bundles here and there which happens to be very important to my life right now. But when I was doing it then, you know, there wasn't much in terms of like legal infrastructure and business infrastructure for it. So it became a bit of my expertise in the area that I was focusing on as a lawyer. And then I moved into the business side of it. So I followed Nikita into the consulting route as well. I did that exact same thing that I was doing as a lawyer as a consultant. So provider value-based care, lots of transformations from the traditional, you know, eat what you kill, fee-for-service market into the how do you actually improve outcomes and produce cost of care results on top of just the fee-for-service churn? Uh, and then I did that for three or four years before moving over to uh, start the fund. So my goal actually was always to be a healthcare entrepreneur. I didn't know how I was going to do it, whether it was going to be raising venture money and then coming up with an idea and starting from scratch with zero patients and just money in the bank, which made no sense to me, or actually approaching the market finding providers that were already delivering really high quality care, acquiring those providers or tech and services companies with the goal of converting them into the kind of hammer meets nail thing that I know, which is value-based care. And so that's what I went in with uh, the search mindset of super narrow thesis, kind of articulated my fund as that out of the gate. And then we actually ended up doing a few things in the fund process, including getting a proprietary Medicare contract, which has some pros, has some cons, but we are definitely using it as part of our you know, thesis and process now, and then acquired a home-based primary care and hospice operation that really fits that mold. And so you know, my old background of doing provider stuff outside of facilities into the legal background, into the business background was kind of what got me here with a couple of steps along the way. Yeah, I think, and I think you both acquired fairly similar businesses. Do you want to describe Enoble Care a little bit, and then Nikita can share a little bit about Crown? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so uh, I, the funny thing is, so uh, Nikita, when she was purchasing her business, I was starting my search, and so it was cool because I got to actually talk to Nikita when she was like in month two, I think, of of Crown, right? Maybe something like that, month one. Uh, when I was raising... Yep, I'm pretty sure I, I took a lot of notes from that first conversation. Well, actually, even before that, when I was raising my fund, people were telling me about Crown and how it's like the perfect business for my thesis. And I was like, man, that's really cool. Let me, let me learn more about it. And uh, a bunch of Nikita's investors actually asked me when I was raising the fund just to like test my 
problem solving skills, honestly, is what they were doing, right? They're like interviewing me and poking me to test my problem solving skills. They were like, what do you think about this business? Like, give me the, you know, give me, give me your lowdown. And so I did. And I was like, yes, you should absolutely buy this thing right now. It's the perfect time and the perfect thing to buy. And a couple of them listened and a couple of them didn't. And I'm sure the ones that didn't are very unhappy right now. But the ones that did are very happy. And so all that to say, uh, my business is about, I would say, a third of what Nikita's business is, which is home-based primary care. And then about two-thirds hospice, which is end-of-life care for almost the same population. The way I think about it is home-based primary care serves people in the last three to five years of life. They're already very geriatric. They typically have many, many chronic diseases. They typically need a lot of touch points. They're sometimes in assisted living facilities and also at homes with you know caregivers that are providing pretty frequent support. And then they transition as they get closer to death to hospice, where the touch points become much more active and we're providing much more of a full suite of services before you know they transition. And so the whole uh, goal of the business is to provide that full continuum. We have about 225 employees, about five states, uh, and we are also in the value-based care world with this thing called the CMS direct contract, which is you know a lot of things, but really just comes down to the kind of a Medicare Advantage plus accountable care organization makes a baby and that's the direct contract. And so we are transitioning our folks into that world, as well as taking on some of the tech-enabled focuses with the EMR that we have, which is in-house built, which is a proprietary medical record software to bring the whole thing together. Yeah, and uh, Crown, as as Kirsch said, is the, the one third of his business that's home based primary care. That's exactly what Crown is. Same same kind of approach to serving geriatric patients in that stage of life. The two, I think, you know, Chris, you know, you, you could speak to this more obviously, but the the home based primary care is reimbursed slightly differently than than a hospice or home health traditionally. So the, they're part A, we're part B, and so it's just a much more narrow focus on just that that component of care for us and you know, growth in, in this world is very much just, you know, bringing in the right providers, training the right providers, growing their census, kind of developing the relationships with senior housing and, and that sector. Because, you know, just half of what I used to do is just logistics, right? Like, how do you get people out in the field and seeing patients at a rate that makes sense, especially in the in the fee-for-service world where you're really, you know, productivity is a big concern. That's That's going to make or break you there's a natural fit with senior housing. So that's uh, predominantly where we work in Washington state, across the state, both in the West side and, and out in Spokane. And the the founder of this business had been a provider herself. So she had kind of operationalized a lot of things for, for making that work and, and actually achieving sort of profitability with that model. And then my kind of role had, has been to really, you know, build out all the support functions, bring some more sort of operational clarity around, you know, not just the provider's job, but the back office, how we enroll new patients, how we grow, how we recruit all of those pieces and giving it, giving it a chance to scale uh, much faster than it had before. Gotcha. And so I'm only vaguely familiar with uh, value-based care just from our conversations, but can you walk through what value-based care means and what some of the implications were for both your businesses? Yeah, sure. So I'm the newbie here. Uh, so I, I suppose it's helpful to hear it from another newbie. Um, Value-based care is really around taking sort of the approach of you as the provider are really taking on the responsibility of providing care to a patient and actually managing their their sort of longevity, their their longitudinal care, as opposed to just the one instance where you're the provider in front of the patient in one visit. So, you know, I might say, okay, you know, how do I think about preventative care for this patient? How do I think about providing services so that overall their total cost of care is lower and not just about how quickly can I get them in and out of my my clinic room or whatever? So the the way you do that is by, and Chris, you'll have to help me out here, is by really managing the data around that patient, right? How sick are they to begin with? What kind of services do we think they need? Predicting how think how much we think they will cost really to uh, a plan like Medicare or to any private plan, and then uh, working backwards and saying, okay, well, what can we do preventatively to reduce that expected cost of care for that patient? Um, and you do it over the course of the entire year as opposed to just just one touch point. So it really brings in everything, right? You're not just controlling the cost of a provider. You're now controlling the cost of, you know, more more acute care, their their treatments, their other services that they use. So you really, really have to think more logistically about, about that patient's life. 
And so, I mean, it's, it's a, a big challenge and hard to do if you're a small provider, but now there's these tools, you know, and programs that are enabling small providers like ourselves at Crown to be providing that value-based perspective as opposed to just the, the one-time service. Yeah, Nikita's way too modest when she says she's the newbie. But the, you know, the only thing I'll add, right, is if, if you take a 30,000-foot view, value-based care basically allows providers to participate in the payer business model. So if you think about those two business models, typically is separate in that insurance companies, payers make money when the amount they budget for a patient, the premium, is less, sorry, is more than the amount that they cost to actually take care of the patient. They get to keep the difference as their margin. Providers, typically, the business model is you do the work, you get paid for that specific work, and the cost of you doing that work versus the amount you got paid for that work is your margin. And value-based care allows providers to both keep the part of their margin, but also participate to the payer side of the margin. And the real value of that, right, is that providers have the real control over that cost of care. They have the real ability to influence how healthy people are and how they do over the course of a year and where they're going to get their care, which is why providers are actually from a theoretical and in many cases a practical standpoint, then the right position to be participating in the payer side of the business model and be driving value in it. So more and more payers and providers have gotten together for that. The you know, the, the prototypical examples being like the Kaisers of the world, which were doing it way, way longer ago, and then the Optums and Uniteds of the world, which are doing it much more at scale now. But the real kind of value now is that smaller providers like us can go and negotiate rates directly with insurance companies that take on that risk, as well as participate in Medicare models that lets us be essentially the payer on behalf of Medicare. So you mentioned some of the you know theoretical and practical like, like incentives that value-based care provides. Has that been a fairly effective incentive within your businesses? Like is that is that working as it's intended to be working? Or what are some challenges behind running it? I mean, I can I can tell you from our perspective, we're not we're not even there yet. You know, the journey to to shift from the kind of eat what you kill kind of thing that you the term you use, Coach, to to actually being a fully fledged functioning value based care team is it's a very long journey, and and was really taking up a good part of our time last year to think through how do we even get there because you're now looking at at so much more data on each individual patient, plus you're looking at your whole patient population, you know, as as a whole to see you know, cumulatively, are you taking on too much risk or are you prepared to handle all of the various factors that they could, you know, encounter as a group, not just as individual patients? So I think financially, you know, it pencils out, but really there's a there's a significant period of investment up front to make that shift and to build out all the all the tools that you need to be to be fully functioning. So I I, I can't say that I mean I we only made it through so I think the first sort of initial planning phases of that before we ended up having this this exit opportunity. And part of the consideration around the exit was really around who do we partner with to get some of those higher level resources because it, it, it is a bigger lift than I think we would have been able to do quickly. Yeah. And I mean, I think on my end, you know, we just closed the business in the fall. Luckily, we had the contract before that. So we did put 10% of our population into value-based care this year. So as of January 1st, 2022, we have 10% of our primary care population in there. I'll let you know how it goes in July of next year. Between now and then, there's a lot of things that we're really focused on operationally, right? I mean, there's three pillars to succeeding in value-based care. Number one is risk adjustment. Number two is having a lot of visibility on your patient population. And then number three is actually influencing the equalization of the patient population. That's basically what you have to do with the 30,000-foot view. And then diving into the details of each of those is nuts. So we did a risk adjustment sprint in December to make sure our patients were coded appropriately. We then dived in now to how do we get the visibility on that patient population, including with like crazy things like having a community EMT that responds to your home and takes care of you after hours. And then eventually we'll get to a place where we can do that stuff at scale. But we're very much, I would say, in the pilot stages. So, you know, give me a couple of years and then maybe I'll write a paper about it. But at the moment, it's uh, just getting off the ground, I would say. And obviously, Nikita's, you know, partner that she mentioned, you know, you, People put a lot of capital and a lot of scale behind this stuff. Where I think, obviously, in a slightly different position from a business profile and from like a, a risk tolerance point of view. And so we're taking a little bit of a slower approach, right, to get to that same place. And Nikita, you mentioned that it's harder at 
a smaller scale to do some of these things. And some of that scale from your exit is going to help with some of these transitions. What are some challenges of trying to run this model without that larger scale behind you? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's a, it's like an infrastructure problem, right? Like this is, you're working with CMS, which is actually, you know, innovative agency. They think a lot about, you know, the future and they're, they're rolling out programs like DCE and all that's great, but they're still working with, you know, data that is typically six months to a year behind. And you, when you're trying to do something that, you know, influences your business today and you don't have data that's, that's current, um, it's very difficult to navigate. And so, you know, there's workarounds for it. There's, there's organizations that can build out you know, very comprehensive, like digital infrastructure to help guide what their clinicians do, what their, their patients do, what their support teams do, and, and really start making those, those incremental changes in people's behavior that ultimately leads to the cost savings. But as a small organization, you know, you're not building out those gigantic platforms that just don't have the bandwidth or, or the capital to do that. So, you know, you're trying to find the next best approximation to tell you, you know, what you need to know about your patients and your, and your population. So that's one, one kind of, challenge. The second is also sort of the functions that are required in value-based care are slightly different, right? You're, you have a lot more people trying to p- you plug the gaps, I guess, in care, or you have people trying to help, you know, help you understand risk in a much more detailed fashion. And those are roles that we typically wouldn't have in a, in a fee-for-service practice. There, there's just not enough, you know, overhead sort of allocated to, to those things. So for us, it was trying to find the right people for the right seats. Some of those challenges too, that would have taken longer had we not you know, decided to say, okay, let's bring in someone with more expertise. Yeah, you mentioned the kind of right people, right seat issue. One one thing I was excited to chat with you both about is just talent management. So making sure you have the right people, but also the right providers in your in your programs. What is the the team management dynamic like in both of your businesses? For us, you know, the way I think about our teams is there's the teams that were at the company before we got in there. And then there's the teams that we build on top of it. And then there's like the integration of those two, right? And how to kind of build the right org structure going forward. It's a perpetual work in progress. Like I, I've not had it for very long and I know that it's going to be a perpetual work in progress, but talent and delegation is really important. And then from like a, how do you define the talent gaps perspective? There's both experience, but also personality and you know what people want and want to do and how they approach problems and how they solve problems and how they implement things. And I think the biggest thing that I have found is, you know, no matter what, the hardest challenge is the, you know, finding the people who can both ideate and then also implement, right? Who can take that whole continuum of thinking through a problem, figuring out a potential hypothesis-driven solution, actually going and testing that hypothesis, figuring out what went wrong, what went right, and then scaling it, right? Those people are worth their weight in gold. So that's perpetually what I'm looking for is people that fit to that specific mold. Yeah, and I, I think I spent a lot of time also thinking about the the clinical teams, which are you know different in this world than in a, a traditional brick and mortar kind of healthcare operation, which it's hard enough for them, right? Like the 2021 will probably go down in history as like the worst time to be hiring anybody ever. And just so much upheaval, so much sort of craziness. But on top of that, the, the healthcare labor market went absolutely bananas. So for us, there was a lot of, lot of thinking about like, you know, we're not offering necessarily, you know, the benefits packages and the, the, the terms that a, a larger healthcare employer could. So what could we do to kind of be creative about bringing in more talent, people who are, you know, genuinely excited about this demographic, people who would thrive well in the kind of setting of, of, hey, kind of being out on your own, you know, seeing patients and dealing with all these issues. And and yeah, that, that kind of unique mix of, of people who are both doers, but also thoughtful doers, I guess you could say. And so that was really, I, I honestly probably spent, and I, I mean, it's kind of crazy to say this, but like I spent very little time thinking about growth or about our customer. I mean, we had a great clinical team, so they were taking care of the, the customer, quote unquote. I was thinking about our employees. I mean, that 90% of my time was spent on just like, where do we find great clinicians? How do we train them? How do we prepare them for hopefully a long career with us, or at least in this this home-based care space? How do we get them ready to make this pivot to value? Things like that. So yeah, it's it's all, it, I mean, it's just, a, it's a people business in every in every regard, right? Everywhere you look. What are some ways you've tried to find those folks who fit that mold for your companies? Like, obviously, you didn't have experience 
prior to 2020 or 2019 when when you didn't own your companies at that point. But what does it take today to find those really great people and plug them into your company? For us, one thing that's helped is really getting the right person involved in the decision-making process, right? There's part of what I try to do is get out of the way in terms of building a process that really fits the role we were trying to fill. So if it's clinical, then the clinical team needs to be driving it. I'm, you know, there to provide the tools and remove the obstacles and try to make sure everything's streamlined, but I'm not inserting myself into that process. And, And folks that are on the ground that are actually doing the job every day should have, you know, the most input into how they grow their teams. And so that, that worked really well for us because, you know, one, it just builds trust in the organization and two, our applicants respond to it, right? If they're talking to another clinician right off the bat and they know that, hey, this person is telling me things from personal experience and not from from any anything else. And then the other thing that we did was, you know, it's kind of out of necessity, we we took a lot of chances on folks that were very new to the industry. So new grads, you know, folks that are just coming in from other types of roles and got creative about like, you know, what are those feeders that make sense for our our industry? So a lot of former home health nurses and folks that have worked in in nursing backgrounds that are now graduated into being mid-level providers are great because they just, you know, they they know the ins and outs of who they're dealing with and they're just coming at it with a slightly different approach. Folks that have worked in institutions, you know, long-term care, prisons even, you know, folks that really know that working with a large population comes with different challenges than than that one-on-one relationship have been really successful with us. So, yeah, just just some some creative thinking around that those aspects really helped. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I'll, I'd add, right, is that there's almost no substitute to kind of constant tenacity on this stuff. It's, it, you know, there's that and a mixture of just seeing around corners a little bit in terms of when you will need something and thinking about that way ahead of when you need something. So almost like that proactiveness to it. There's good people out there, right? There's good people who will want to fit in the roles that we're looking for. They're there, but finding them is hard and takes both a mixture of time and persistence. And so I know Nikita did a lot of this. You know, we we have, you know, we have a recruiter who does a ton of screening. We have very clear criteria in terms of what we're looking for in our various stacks. Like because we're a little bit of a diversified business, right? We have everything from physicians all the way down to $15, $18 an hour hospice aides and every literally every step in between those roles, right? So there's very different profiles of people we're looking for, very different places. We're getting them very different incentive structures, very different things that they want in their job. And so it's almost like figuring out all those fits and then also communicating those fits almost constantly to the market, which is uh, a perpetual challenge. I mean, we've had, you know, since starting, uh, the hiring thing has just been a big problem and area of focus for us. And I don't think I have gotten to a place where I'm very comfortable that we have like a really good hiring path uh, and a path to visibility of candidates in the next like three, six months. Yeah. My wife worked as a hospice aide and getting experience prior to getting into PT school. So it, it definitely, definitely takes a special person to be able to do that kind of work and they can be hard to find. One thing that became really interesting during COVID is remote patient monitoring became a lot more common. And I'd love to hear a little bit about how you saw that transformation happen and just what are some effects or challenges within having more remote patient monitoring within your businesses? I think, Kush, you told me you were the the instigator of this for a crown um, in our early conversation. Like, hey, there's this thing, RPM, you should look into it, which we did. So I, I can share a little bit about kind of our journey with it just because it was an interesting so there's a ton of there's a ton of vendors like RPM is is new you know hot there's a it, it's very much a you know way to play in healthcare without without so so much of the overhead so a lot of players a lot of tools a lot of you know platforms built around it now that are trying to integrate with with EMRs and with existing tools but it's funny because and we've encountered this in many different ways but you know the technology kind of industry and and how they think about bringing something to to, to market in our demographic and the stuff that gets missed just because you wouldn't think of it if you were, you know, a a developer of this type of tool, right? So like, I'll give you an example. When we were trying to first deploy these, you need to have consents, obviously, from the patient that they they want the device and that they're going to use it and that they know how to use it. Many of our patients are, do not provide their own consent. You know, they have guardians or they have um, powers of attorney, their, their children or folks that are involved in their care. And yet 
I have yet to find a platform that's designed to communicate as seamlessly with those folks as they are with us or with the patient, right? When in reality, that that stakeholder is as big of a of an influence in, in our sort of decision making as 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 the patient themselves. And so, you know, if you're d- designing an RPM platform and you're not thinking about this demographic and their unique needs, you're kind of missing a big chunk of that, right? Like, how do you how do you actually deploy this successfully? So, you know, we interviewed a lot of vendors. We kind of had them talk us through their platform and their process and their tools. And what we found is that it's still, you still need the people who know it. You you still need the support team to actually deploy this much more so than you need a great device or then, you know, the devices aren't, aren't rocket science. It's a, it's a basic cuff or a basic whatever that happens to have maybe a, you know, cell enabled transmitter to send a piece of data back to you. But what you need is the person calling ahead and saying, I'm sending you this, please use it and don't throw it away and, you know, don't stick it in the shelf and don't use it on your, your sister and send us false readings. Like, you know, stuff like that, that is the make or break. And so it's just been a fun, it, it's uh, fun. It's an interesting word, but it's just been a, it's been a process, you know, building out operations that actually work in reality for us. And so we do have a, a program now and it works, but it's not, you know, it's a cobbled together kind of effort between us and our vendor and, and all of that. I do remember that conversation, Akita, early on. It was like a month or two in, and, and I was telling you about all these random ancillaries that uh, Medicare has started to cover. So I think, I mean, RPM is that, right? You know, whenever Medicare builds a revenue model for something, the whole world jumps on it. That's just how it works. Vendors come out of the woodwork, technology companies decide it matters. And at the end of the day, it's still the providers that are taking care of the patients. And so there's, you have to have like the, the bridge to, communicate what the value is to clinicians and then what the value is to patients and families. And so we have, you know, we've rolled it out too for our, our folks. I think the value of it from a clinical standpoint is going to be made better once the devices have gotten better than what they are right now. You know, one of the kind of threshold problems of RPM is that you have to have an FDA approved device, right? And it's kind of annoying, frankly, because there's some devices that would be very good for RPM that are not yet FDA approved, but eventually will be. And so just as an example, right, like certain kinds of watches, which are in the FDA approval process right now that allow you to do a mix of things, including, you know, geolocation, basic heart rate, respiratory tracking, as well as, you know, a really, really simple blood pressure. And you can do those things with one device that only gets charged once a week, versus a device that you're charging all the time and you have to actively take readings on. So I think there's a lot of clinical room for RPM to grow as the technology gets better from a hardware standpoint, which is going to make the value that much better, right? Because from a value-based care perspective, what I want to know is, did my patient leave the facility? Did they enter a radius within you know, 25 yards of a hospital ER, right? <laughs> Those are the alerts I want as much as I want the one blood pressure every couple of days, and I can't get it yet, right? So that's the, the thing we eventually want to aspire to. There's a few things you've kind of alluded to within RPM and remote patient monitoring. What are some of the kind of you know benefits down maybe a year or two down the line where that that data that you're starting to work on collecting now starts to become really valuable and helpful? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. So we, you know, lab trending is one example that eventually can go into vital sign trending. I think the there's a lot of correlative data in value-based care in particular, that hasn't been used yet. And that's because value-based care has often relied on what's traditionally called claims data, right? And claims data is literally the... It's those codes being dropped that tells you what service is being done rather than what happened at the service with the patient, which is the clinical data component. So, you know, five years ago when I was doing my first like, analytical project on value-based care... We're using claims data that's telling us some great macro things, right? Like diagnoses and what happened, but it's not telling us the more micro things like what were their vital signs that really resulted in the exacerbation that brought them to the hospital? What was the lab value that we should be watching out for that will have this be a repeatable event, right? And I think that's where remote monitoring can go, where it actually helps us predict and understand decisions before the decisions are too late to be made. Um, and I don't think it's gotten quite there yet, right? I think if we, first of all, someone has to do the work of that data anal- analytics. There's not many people in the country or world that can do that. And then on top of that, you have to figure out how to operationalize that at the clinical level. There's even fewer people in the country and world that can do that. So I think that's the the holy grail that, that we all definitely want to get to. 
yeah, I, I think that's that's exactly um, right. And I, I mean, I, this is just we've barely scratched the surface. I would agree with that. I think there's one component too about you know the social determinants of health is you know this t- big topic that comes up all the time about how do these non-clinical aspects of someone's life really out- affect their outcomes and their you know likelihood of having these adverse events. You know, all we have now is really just the the, the providers' instincts or their sort of anecdotal experience to really factor that in and there's probably a way to, to fold that data into to paint a much better picture of how uh, a patient is going to do. And we've just, you know, barely, barely opened that, that sort of box of, of information. I want to turn to the business side just a little bit and hear about more. One thing we talked about before with, with both of you was revenue cycle management with a lot of your revenue being deferred for 30, 60, 90 days after you have your costs incurred. I'd be curious how you both manage that process, especially if you're, you know, buying the business and it's a new acquisition and you might not have a whole lot of working capital there. Like, what do you, what are you having to do to manage that process and get to get your get your business to a point where it feels less like you're playing catch up all the time? What did I actually do? Just panic all the time. No, uh, <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> what else is the solution? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't know that that was helpful, but I did it anyway. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I mean, this is, this is like, it's not even a cottage industry. It's just a full on industry, right? Like helping healthcare organizations manage their rev cycle. It's, it's immense. And we just, you know, we did the, the, the basic playbook, you know, sort of streamline your, your, your claims, uh, process and have really close monitoring of your key KPIs and, you know, have a, have a, robust process for following up on, on things like denied claims and delayed claims and things like that. It's, it's, it's really, I don't think we ever got past the sort of eat your vegetables and do your exercise stage of, of just cleaning up what we had internally and just doing it every day and trying to get better and better each, each quarter. I think that's as far as we got, honestly, I don't, I don't have a, a magic bullet answer to that one. Yeah. Which means that I have an even less magic, magic bullet answer to that one. Um, no, I mean, I think like, there's always the perpetual bank account balance being looked at, right? Which is the the mix between revenue cycle and payroll, right? It's a people heavy business, so you got to pay people on time, and that's everything, and that's your you know your cat your biggest cash out. At the same time, the revenue cycle delays are essentially the thirty day delay, right? Because the people are being paid for providing a service. And we are paying them to provide that service, but we're not collecting the money for the service that they provided until 30 plus days out. And so that's the the perpetual cycle. You know, there's a lot of different ways to think about, do you have enough working capital? Do you have access to a revolver? You know, are you thinking well about callable capital potentially as needed um, that are just good stop gaps? Nikita gave me the advice to raise more capital than I thought I needed. I don't think I took that advice nearly seriously enough. And so here we are, you know, in retrospect, probably could have done done even better. But other than that preparation, right, and then, you know, blocking and tackling well once you're in the business, there's really no rocket science to it, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a searcher tradition, right? People advise you to be like, oh, you're going to need more than you think, and then I'm good. Uh, <laughs> nope. <laughs> yep, wrong need more that's that's awesome i want to step back and like take a look at look at this world from the the search perspective so there's i would love to hear a little bit more about how you've seen the healthcare in search either become more or less popular over time and then even healthcare on its own is just such a broad bucket like healthcare could be software it could be patient work like you guys are doing it could be ambulance fleet management. Like it, it, there's just so many different models within healthcare. What are some broad buckets that companies fall into within the healthcare universe? And then what's been the interest in the search world in healthcare over the last couple of years? Certainly seems to be a lot more appetite for kind of diving in. Um, and I mean, Kush, you probably were one of the, the first folks to have a very focused thesis around search in healthcare. I've seen other searchers come up with that kind of that have reached out to me recently with that kind of focus as well, which is which is cool. I don't know that I think about them as buckets. I think about it as a spectrum, right, of how close are you to the patient and therefore how close are you to the regulatory and compliance challenges that come with being close to the patient. 
you know, the further out you are, the more sort of you are either a service provider to other healthcare businesses or, or things like that, the less you have to deal with that scrutiny and that that challenge. So, I mean, I look back now and I'm it's kind of crazy that, you know, we dove in with into Crown with a lot of that that very upfront kind of challenge of you are patient facing, you are dealing with with a lot of regulatory and compliance challenges. It's a very highly scrutinized kind of space. And I had I was very lucky in that my board was very open to kind of learning with me and and just diving in and kind of building that that body of knowledge that was necessary to survive in that world. And now obviously there's a ton more investors that have that background because they've been through it once, right? And you're not having to relearn that whole piece of it. And once you 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 have that under your belt, it kind of eases the way for future searchers certainly to say, okay, you, you know, I'm not trying to bring an investor into something that's like a hornet's nest that they have no idea about. It is a hornet's nest, but you know what you're dealing with a little bit better with each successive successive deal. So yeah, I think I think the trend is sort of positive for healthcare, certainly. I, I don't know beyond that, having not really engaged with the search and uh, sort of ecosystem as closely recently, if that's changed. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think it has changed. The Just generally speaking, right, I think there's a lot of funds now that explicitly talk about healthcare as the specific asset class that they're looking for searchers to focus on. And thus, there's a lot of searchers then subsequently focusing on it. I think an interesting thing that happened in, in the search world is that people jumped into healthcare like head first in the last few years in a very active way, which is great. I think there's still a lot of a sentiment of people just don't know yet what they don't know in the healthcare world, right? Which is, again, just something that'll kind of prove out over time. And I think there's part of what I see a lot of is just the need for, you know, the the education, right? It's like, you gotta, as, as you build your board, you build your investor community, it's really important to constantly be educating ahead of time, right? And to tell people the, the risks and the rewards and the two, three, four, five, six, ten 10 years from now kind of concepts that are very difficult to digest if you haven't spent a ton of time in it. And so I think that's like the when I think about search and healthcare, you know, I think being farther and farther away from the patient is much easier from a path of entry perspective because it looks a lot more like another tech and services business. And the closer and closer you get to a patient, the harder it is to use Nikita's continuum to actually be fully aware of the pitfalls and challenges of running one of those businesses. So I think we'll, you know, as we learn and as there's a couple of great wins and a couple of great flops, I think the search community is going to get better at understanding it. Yeah. And one way it sounds like the community will get better is in the diligent side. So it's when you have an investor base that is learning just alongside you about the healthcare space, I imagine it's pretty difficult to find helpful advisors who can help you you point you in the right direction within some of these companies as you do diligence on them. What are some challenges or mistakes that you both made or you've you've seen other searchers like yourselves make in diligencing these healthcare businesses? I, I in my case I don't know I can't say it was a mistake. It's just a, a lack of knowledge, right? You don't know what you don't know. And there was so much I did not know. And I think other searchers too, you're you're only gonna find, I think and every every aspect of these businesses so it, are so interconnected that if you kind of say, okay, I, I'm I'm good with eight out of the nine things, but the ninth sort of aspect of this business is kind of fatally flawed, right? You have to have a way to fix that without the ripple effects, you know, kind of affecting the eight other aspects of the business too. So there's just some challenges around that, that uh, the interconnectedness of it that you may not know as someone who's looking at from the outside in um, to a business and and kind of anticipating how it's going to going to affect things. So I'll give you an example. A few months into our into our time with Crown, you know, we said, okay, we really need to uh, do a rehaul of our training for our providers around documentation and maintaining good records and making sure that everything is compliant. So we said, okay, fine, we'll 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 do that. Well we need to, you know, have time for everyone to go through their training and start changing their behavior. So okay, we're, we're going to take a couple of weeks out of out of our, our schedule to do that, right? Like pull everyone out of the field. You're not seeing patients. You're sitting in class learning about how to do documentation. Well, okay, you know, 
our patients are are the kind of demographic where things happen in two weeks. Like, you know, people need to be watching. There needs to be sort of a, a hand on the wheel. So, you know, there's stuff piling up at that time where the team is, is kind of getting backlogged and, and having trouble keeping up. That means that, you know, our back office is slammed. It kind of has this ripple effect throughout the entire business. And then you're back at the point where you're like, you have providers saying, I have no time to do my documentation because you just took me out of the field for two weeks. And you're like, okay, well, unintended consequences. I mean, I, I think we knew it was going to happen. I, I had a great clinical partner helping me run this business who she's a nurse practitioner herself. And, you know, she was seeing patients throughout this whole time. And so she had a kind of bird's eye view and a, an immediate view into what was happening on the ground. So, you know, she's helping guide her team to say, okay, this is how we get back on track. This is how we manage all the different things that are pulling us in different directions. So, you know, just, just that piece of it, I think talking to other searchers obviously helps spending as much time on the ground with the people doing the work is a huge part of it. And if you can get that, you know, pre pre transition or pre closing or whatever, because that, that it's hard to glean that from, you know, just a report or, or a, a slide or whatever it is, you, you really need to be on the, on the ground for it. Yeah, I mean, the completely agree. I think the biggest, you know, there's almost no way to, from a diligent standpoint, to get the level of knowledge about a business that you get in the first couple months of running the business, right? And so I wish there was some way of fixing that a little bit in terms of pulling back and saying, how do you get to almost to be running the business before you're running the business? I think that would be a great way of trying to approach some of these deals, especially like the on the ground healthcare deals are they're very very operationally heavy right which means like the operating aspects of it are not things that you can track on you know a spreadsheet right they're not nps scores or the kind of percentages or arr fluctuations over time but rather they're very much like okay well is there a, a clean process for this one thing for example flu vaccination rollout, right? Like, are we tracking who needs them and when they're going out and when we're billing for it and when we're collecting for it, right? Like, it's, it's little things like that that get... I wish I did a much, much better job at that operating diligence before just to even know, like, the 15 things I'd have to do in my first, you know, couple months on the job, right? Instead, I got onto the job that had to learn those 15 things and then had to solve for those 15 things, which obviously I'm still solving for. It's not a solved for. I don't know why I use past tense there, but it's like a perpetual solving. But I think the the hardest thing in my case also was the long gestation period for the deal, right? Like we had a change of ownership application process that we had to go through for uh, one of our states, which made it a six-month deal time period, which is long. And what happens there is that you know, there's a mix of different people taking their priorities off the business and focusing on the deal for too long, enough time where the deal is actually changing and growing as you are going through that process. And so there's a lot that changes fundamentally about a business in six months. And so that's part of the the challenge of when you start the LOI period versus when you finish the LOI period. So um, I think if there's two things I could fix, it'd be, it'd be that. Also, you know, avoid global pandemics if you can. That's also nice. <laughs> yeah, I hate that yes. If at all possible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pandemics are definitely helpful to avoid. What, what were some changes from the pandemic that you both noticed in your companies? <laughs> Nikita should definitely go first here because, so let me just, just to tee this up for Nikita here. She bought the business and then like a week or two later, it was the global pandemic, like day one. So it wasn't even like, you know, I had a completely privileged life of going through the global pandemic and buying, knowing that we were in a global pandemic. When Nikita had the opposite, she didn't know it when she bought it, and then it happened to her. So, did yeah, not so know it. That, I was not reading my <laughs> reading the news as diligently as I could have been uh, the week before closing. Yeah, no, it was. I, at this point, I don't know, honestly, to be perfectly frank, what about this business has not been touched by the pandemic. And if it has been because of the pandemic, I can't tell you like what percentage. Like it's just so intertwined in the DNA of everything, like every every process flow that we built, every change that we made, every kind of, you know, piece of growth or, or opportunity that came came our way. Because it ended up obviously huge portion of our patients were impacted. We lost, you know, significant amount of the population to to COVID in that first year. I actually didn't even know how, what the scope of it was fully because our like our, our data was not good enough, honestly, that first year to look back and say, 
this is the number of patients we lost to COVID. And so, you know, we found out later, looking back um, at some of this claims information, we went to telemedicine. That was a whole kind of new thing for the business that had never been done before. So building that whole process flow out, getting our people used to it, getting our patients used to it, showing them how they could interact with us through not just video and audio, but like, you know, email and like stuff that just wasn't a thing. Like, and this was a fax and like maybe a phone call and then a visit kind of business, right? Before, before COVID. Just how our team works and, you know, just building the this culture around remote work and, and remote teams. And it, it, the whole kind of industry accelerated probably by, and I, Kush, you'll have to kind of give your opinion on this, but in 2019, I was at a healthcare conference where people were talking about like population health management and ACOs as though it was like the cutting edge, right? It was like, oh my God, you're in an ACO. That's, that's amazing. And then, you know, COVID happens and, and by late 2020, you know, we're talking about things like, like the DCE, like, you know, value-based care as though it's happening tomorrow. Like that was probably 10 years away pre-COVID. It's sort of like a, a mass acceleration of these industry trends that just got compressed into into the last couple of years. So everything from from big sort of impacts, industry impacts to everyday kind of changes to, to how we work, it's just so incredibly intertwined. The labor market, as I mentioned before, the chip shortage. I can't get, you know, monitoring devices for my people because of the chip shortage. I can't get laptops to my providers because of the chip shortage. Like, you know, stuff you wouldn't think about. But like everywhere you look, the the impacts are there. And I I have not at all teased them out, to be quite frank. So it probably will take take two more years to do that, <laughs> you know, understand the impacts. Yeah, no, sounds about right. I was raising my fund before COVID. I had gotten all of the verbal confirmations on it. And then um, in the first, I think it was like the, maybe it was like the week after COVID was when I was supposed to close. I, I sped it up by about two weeks as soon as I started to see the writing on the wall to close. And I thought the world, like, world was going to run out of money at that time, which obviously was not the case at all. The opposite happened. But the interesting thing was my thesis was very specific, right? I talked about home-based care and I talked about value-based care in my search fund thesis. When I was doing it, people would be like, what the heck is value-based care? I know. But when we, when we think about like, what the heck is value-based care, that conversation I am not having anymore. And I think that has largely to do with COVID, right? And the acceleration that Nikita is talking about is so real to put into perspective. When we applied for direct contracting, um, which was you know in the first stages in the end of 2019, early 2020, no one knew about it. No one talked about it. It wasn't like a hot topic. Congress, if you if you put the words in, in front of Congress, they would have no idea what it was, right? Now it is a very hot topic. Everyone's talking about it. Multiple senators are on either side of the issue. I can't even believe there's sides of the issue, honestly. That's just astonishing to me. And, and that's what's changed, right? Like there's multiple home-based care bills that are going through Congress right now, multiple value-based care bills that are going through. There's people who have opinions on the matter and that never had opinions on the matter before. And so when, you know, we started to get through this deal to running the business, it just, I was expecting a lot kind of quieter aspects of value-based care and being one of the few people that even knew it was a thing to care about. And now it's the opposite, which I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. Honestly, it's probably a little bit of both, but it's, uh, the market has fundamentally changed. Yeah, it's certainly so much different than when you started your search. I want to get into some closing questions. What kind of college class would you each teach if it could be about any subject you wanted? Which Who, who wants to go first? Uh, definitely not me. <laughs> oh, man. I, I don't know that... I, I don't want to say teach because that implies I know something to share. But like... And I, I mean, I, I do it. This experience has taught me a lot. But I would love to just develop some content around risk and decision making, I guess is the, the way I'd put it, just because, you know, it's interesting to talk to searchers who are very early in the process and they're weighing the risk and, you know, trade-offs of, of doing search in the broader context of their life. And then you get to the point where you're looking at businesses and you're deciding how to take the plunge and like how to weigh the risk of that. And then you get to operating. And in my case, you you make approximately one decision every seven minutes, right? Like you are so quickly in the in the path of just do, 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 and process as much information as you can as quickly as possible. And I honestly don't know if it's made me a better decision maker or a worse one having had to do that because 
you almost have, don't have time to process all the, the data that you need to in order to necessarily say, oh, I, I've done everything I was taught in school about, you know, the, the data analysis and the, the processing and the weighing of pros and cons and all that. So it's just a very weird phenomenon and a weird, it's kind of a weird place to be in where I'm looking back on that experience and thinking like, what other tools should I have had factored in before I launched this, this whole episode? Would I do things differently? What did I do? Like how many decisions did I actually make? Like I, I, some of it honestly is a blur. So like, I would love to kind of go back and think through that and actually have like some, some academic sort of understanding of, of what your brain goes through when you do that. So that would be my choice. I would totally take that class. <laughs> yeah. Just, it's all reminiscent. It's all reminiscent. Yeah. No, I, no, I would totally take that class. I, it's actually, it's funny. I, I perpetually struggle with like the risk aversion question, right? And it's, uh, it's a interesting, I think for searchers just generally, like that would be an interesting, interesting way of approaching it, right? What is, what is risk aversion? What is tolerable risk? What is non, not so tolerable risk? How do you make decisions keeping all of that risk in mind, right? That's, that'd be very interesting, for sure. Mine, I guess it would be a history class, but it would be a history class that is, it would almost be like his, how history repeats itself class. And so instead of thinking about uh, history in like chunks of time periods, it would be history across time periods and across like themes. I think one of the things that I really, really believe in is that things are somewhat repeatable and predictable. And like, I think if we were all better students of history, which I struggle with all the time, then we'd be able to make those decisions better, right? To understand how things went. And a lot of that is like pattern recognition and the same things you get after you've run a business like Nikita has for a couple of years, right? Where those decisions become easier in seven minutes. And I think, you know, that pattern recognition from history would be, would be cool. So that's, I wouldn't, I don't know if I would teach it. Maybe I'd moderate it or proctor it, but it'd be, It'd be a cool one to, to also say that. What's a strongly held belief you've both changed your mind on? I know. I think, I think mine would have to be, and maybe this is just sort of the, the hubris that comes with being an engineer, but you, you always think that there's a, there's a better tool for the job, better technology that you can apply to make something, you know, faster, better, more efficient, whatever. And I think, I mean, it's not a, it's not a belief that I've changed necessarily, but uh, this business has given me such an appreciation for, the people aspects of, of doing things and accomplishing tasks and launching initiatives. And I think this is probably universal for, for most searchers, right? You, you've never been probably this up, up close and personal with, with team dynamics and, and sort of the people issues of, of a business until you're in this seat. And by no means, I've just you know started my journey with it. I, I haven't done this long enough to really have all the, all the insights of course, but it's just given me such an appreciation for that. You know, it's like, Oh yeah, you know, you could have the best solution in the world, you could have the best technology in the world, but the team can make or break it 100%. And I I think I'm curious to see it now in other contexts, right? In other areas where it's certainly in healthcare, but in other industries whether that that holds true or if you can overcome sort of the challenges of 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 big groups of people coming together to work on something with technology. Can can that be not overcome? And I'm not saying it's like a battle between people and technology, but like you know, can you design for for the average user of something and still not have the the, the people aspects of it's going to derail your your progress or whatever it may be? That was not well worded. I'm sorry. I, but it's the best I can do right now. <laughs> these are these are t- these are tough ones, Alex. The the, the strongly held yeah. belief one. That's a that's a killer. That's a killer. Yeah, <laughs> it's definitely one of my most fun ones to, to hear about people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> everyone has something. What's the best business you've ever seen? When I was searching, I had a conversation with a guy who was an operator of like low flying aircraft and drones. And he would just fly around and collect data on like farmland and a bunch of other things. I think it was like for like crop dusting and things like that. And I'm just looking forward now, like at, you know, stuff to do with climate and, you know, preparing for this next aspect of our planet's life. And it just seems like a great business. Just like go fly around all day and get data and then sell it to the highest bidder because there's just, we're going to need so much of it. It's, it's bananas. I'm going to steal my answer from one of my investors who told me about this. And then I researched it and was like, wow, this is so true. But I think the best businesses, and it's not the best business, but the best businesses are possibly porta potty businesses. And I say that because there are, they're highly necessary. <laughs> Once you build it, you can keep reusing it as long as you keep it clean. 
And there's very little competition and little people entering the market. And so it is um, relatively one of those that I think no one ever thinks about. And the reason I'm bringing it up is because search investors love businesses that are the ones that no one else is ever thinking about, actually. And so that's why that was the context in which you brought it up. And I don't know if it's the best business that I've ever seen, but he talked about it like it's the best business around. And, you know, it was interesting. That is interesting. There's a... Nikita on the data one, there's there's a company called Planet that's trying to take that has all these satellites. They had like 400 satellites or something. There was some recent investor the best episode, but they're taking pictures that are fairly high resolution of fields. And I didn't realize how many different how many how much different pieces of data you could gather from just pictures daily of the earth. And I mean you have like crops, are they ready to be harvested? Do they need to be do they need to add fertilizer? Like all these other things. What are yields going to be? But even stuff like, you know, where are the ships going? Or like, what's the, what's traffic on the, in these different areas beyond just like Google Maps? But there's, there's so many applications for that sort of stuff. So I would, I'd love to find a business like that though, because I love planes and data. So I think combining the two sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. I, I, those are my criteria too. I was like, what, what would actually be fun to do? I, I don't really care about the, the financials right now. <laughs> no, I think, I think there's, there's something, it's sort of that, that, point at which we, we have many, many tools to manipulate data and, and present it and, and you know work with it and all of that, but actually going back to the root of, of collecting good data, which actually even in healthcare, right? Like it's, it's, that's, that's where the magic is made for sure. Yeah, certainly. Well, thank you both for coming on the podcast. It's been super fun to have you both and chat more about healthcare more in depth. So thank you both for sharing a little bit of your time and travel safe Nikita as well. And I'll, I'll, I'm excited to see you guys here in a little bit. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com podcast. And if you want to learn more about The Operator's Handbook, please visit us at theoperatorshandbook.com and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better. Better.